The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. We are continuing our study in the fourth gospel. And I need to remind you that we're in the final hours of Yeshua's life. You know, since we started chapter 13, we've been in the final day of His life. So that's been a long day, I know, because we've been you know, spending a lot of time. But you know, for them, chapter 13 began you know, the last night with His disciples. The next day He was going to die, and now we're in the night. Yeshua had gone to the garden with His disciples, the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, and a, a crowd of Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers show up to arrest Him. And Lazarus doesn't tell us this, but we learn from the other Gospels that when they arrested Yeshua, His disciples fled. He predicted that. They did it. Now, after arresting Yeshua, they take Him to Jerusalem to be tried by the Jewish leaders. If you remember, I said last week that uh, Yeshua actually had two trials. Our Lord had an ecclesiastical or a religious trial. And then he had a civil trial. He was judged before the authorities of Israel. And when he was judged before, then the Roman authorities put him to another trial. Now, both trials had three phases, and both were really just mockeries. All right, we'll see some of that today. Yeshua first appeared before Annas. It was kind of a preliminary inquiry. Annas wasn't the high priest, but he had been the high priest, and he still really held that position authority-wise, even though he didn't hold it legally. Uh, The Roman authorities had removed him. They set a a period of one year on the high priesthood just to keep the people in line. And we looked at that last week, his trial before Annas, or the discussion there. Then secondly, he appears in an illegal midnight trial before Caiaphas, and we're going to look at that today. Caiaphas was actually the high priest that year. And Yeshua told Caiaphas that he was the Christ, the Son of God, resulting in him declaring blasphemy. And then finally, he appears before a formal session of the Sanhedrin, which formally condemned him to death. Now, they condemned him to death, but they didn't have the power of death. All right, Because Rome prevented them, the Sanhedrin, from having that power. And so when they, even though they condemn him as worthy of death, they really couldn't do anything about it. They had to get Rome on their side. And so the charge they brought against Yeshua was uh, they had brought a religious charge of blasphemy. Rome didn't care about that. We don't care if he blasphemes. That's got nothing to do with us. So they had to come up with another charge you know, so they could get Rome on their side. So they came up with the idea of treason. And they said that you know, the, Yeshua was teaching that there's another king besides Caesar, which he really, in fact, was doing. There was another king besides Caesar. So he is charged before Pilate with treason. So Pilate tries him. He finds there's really no cause for putting him to death. Pilate did not want anything to do with this, okay? So he hears that Herod's near, so he sends him to Herod, hoping that Herod will take care of it. Um, Yeshua won't say a word to Herod, so Herod's frustrated. He sends him back to Pilate. Again, Pilate wants nothing to do with this, but he caves to the pressure that the Jews were putting on him, and so he hands him over to be crucified. Both trials, as I said, were a mockery of justice. Now, what I want to do this morning is just focus on this one verse and what's missing from it. 
We looked last week at Annas. You know, Annas sent him bound after he was done with him to Caiaphas. That's all he tells us. He sends him to Caiaphas, the high priest. He doesn't mention the Sanhedrin. He doesn't mention the other trials. So we're going to kind of fill in the gaps this morning. Um, Lazarus just focuses on Yeshua before Annas. And then simply says, he sent him bound to Caiaphas. And then from there, he jumps right into the trial with Pilate. So before we look at our Lord before Pilate, which we'll do next week, let's fill in some of the details of his trial before Caiaphas and before the Sanhedrin. Matthew and Mark both give us the details of our Lord before Caiaphas. Luke and Matthew give us some details about our Lord before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Mark 14.53 says, And they led Yeshua to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now Mark simply tells us that they took Yeshua to the high priest, but Matthew tells us who that high priest was in Matthew 26.57. He says, Then those who had seized Yeshua led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So Yeshua is sent from Annas, who we talked about last week, to Caiaphas. Now, as I said last week, the high priest was a very powerful, very important man in Israel. He was the political head of the nation. He was the judicial head of the state. And ordinarily, the priest came from the tribe of Levi, and the high priest came from the family of Aaron, and he was appointed the high priest for life. But now, because they were under Roman jurisdiction, the Romans appointed the high priest, and they set a time for just a year because that keeps people, they don't want anybody to get too powerful. Mark adds this he says, And they led Yeshua to the high priest, and all the chief priests and all the elders and the scribes came together. The chief priests. Now, this is a group that included former high priests and members of the priestly aristocracy, they were Sadducees. And then he also says that they had, there was elders involved. This is the Greek word presbuteri, which sometimes refers to members of the Sanhedrin as a whole, and elsewhere to a third group among the members consisting of priests and lay members of the nobility. And then we have the scribes. They were teachers of the law. They were learned men, sometimes priests, but mostly they were just lay persons who were entrusted with making copies of the Scripture as well as providing instruction in Torah, In Yeshua's time, they drew from both Pharisees and Sadducees' party, and they served as judges and theologians. They would have been called upon to speak and teach in the synagogue. So this is the group he's come before. It's not an official, um, this group makes up the Sanhedrin, but this is not an official group right yet. This is taking place at night, which they were not allowed to do. You don't hold trials at night unless you're trying to hide something, of course, and That's kind of what's going on. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Yeshua to put Him to death, but they found none. The council here is the word sun nedrion, and it means the sitting together. The word refers to the Sanhedrin, the great council of the Jews at Jerusalem. This was their legislative council. And during the time of Yeshua, there was literally three Sanhedrins. One of them was just a three-judge panel. Secondly, there was a 23-member judicial Sanhedrin. And then there was a full 71-member religious Sanhedrin. Only the 23-member Sanhedrin was qualified to try criminal cases. 
Those accused of capital crimes were brought before the court, and the Mishnah states, cases involving the death penalty are judged before the 23 judges. As you'll see as we go through this, that there were some aspects of this trial in the legal system that God had set up for Israel that are great, and this where we get a lot of our legal precedent from. They just didn't follow it too well, like our people don't follow it too well either, okay? Now, the great Sanhedrin, sometimes called the great Bet Din, was a tribal body consisting of 23 chambers, or three chambers, uh, a chamber of chief priests, a chamber of scribes, and a chamber of elders. These are divided into 23 members each, which when combined constitute a body of 69 members. They added the current high priest, a former high priest, they had 71 members in all. Now, the legislative unit was responsible only for the administration of the temple. They made decisions. They were the court that you went to when you needed to be tried. Now, Mark concentrates on the appearance at the house of Caiaphas, which literally is kind of a pre-trial examination. It's not official, not an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. That will take place once it gets to be daylight, and they're actually allowed to do that. Of course, they had their mind made up by then anyway. It says... They were seeking testimony against Yeshua to put him to death. All right, now this is supposed to be some judicial branch, and we notice here that they're not really looking for the truth. Let's get some witnesses. Let's find out what the real story. They're not looking for the real story, people. They're looking for witnesses that will say what they want him to say because they want to put him to death. Their intentions are clear. So this trial is not fair. This trial is not just. You know... (laughs) As I'm going through this and preparing for this, I can't help but think of all the stuff we've seen in the news lately with Kavanaugh and all the unjust witnesses and all the stuff that's happening. I'm thinking, nothing has changed. Okay? Same thing's going on. Now, here's the thing. Israel required two witnesses for capital punishment. That's pretty nice, isn't it? Two or three witnesses? You you don't want someone just blaming you for something and they're going to put you to death. Numbers 35.30 said that, and so did Deuteronomy 17.6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses. All right, so you have to have two or three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Thank the Lord for that. You know, I mean, this is wise that the Lord set this whole thing up. You can't just have one person blame you. It's easy to get one person mad at you. You know, want to blame you. got to have two or three witnesses. And the procedure for examining more than one witness is laid out in Sanhedrin 3.6, where it clearly shows that the witnesses were not allowed to get together. They weren't allowed to share. They would take the witnesses separately. They would hear their story, and then they would see, do these witnesses line up? I mean, it's great, you know, if a couple come, we're gonna, we're, we'll stick together and then we'll have two witnesses. No, they made sure that what they were telling was the truth. And then the judges would discuss the matter and give the verdict after hearing the witnesses. It says, but they couldn't find any. They weren't able to find two of them that agreed with one another and that didn't contradict one another. A lot of people came forward. But as they're independently listening to these witnesses, they're saying, nah, this guy's saying this and this guy's saying that. It just wasn't fitting. He says, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. That they were false witnesses doesn't mean that the Sanhedrin had put 
these false witnesses out deliberately. I think there's probably some members of the Sanhedrin that were actually looking for the truth. They were actually trying to do what was right. I think that, you know, some of them were following correct procedures. They had to. Because there were so many people present there that they just didn't want to go totally off the rail and make it look like they all had you know, lost their mind and were trying to kill an innocent man. Well, as these witnesses one by one would recount the same event, there was such a discrepancy that it was obvious that they're either lying or you know, they're seriously confused about what actually happened. They just couldn't get two to agree, and they needed two to agree. Uh, Mark goes on in chapter 14 to say, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, they say, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple. Well, to speak against the temple was a very serious offense in the time of Yeshua. To desecrate the temple, that was God's house. That's where God lived, okay? So to desecrate the temple in any way was regarded as a sacrilege. It was a crime that carried the death penalty. There were signs, we've talked about this before, in the temple warning Gentiles not to enter, not to go past the court of the Gentiles, or they would be killed. Now, Jeremiah's experience clearly demonstrates that speaking against the temple also was considered a crime worthy of death. Now, those who accused Yeshua of claiming that He would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days were perhaps misunderstanding His statement in John 2. We looked at this a little while ago in John. Yeshua answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, what's Yeshua talking about here? He's not talking about the physical temple, the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about His body. And He he doesn't say, I'm going to destroy anything. He says, You destroy it. You destroy this temple. Alright? Verse 20 says, The Jews then said, It has been 46 years to build this temple. And at the time, they weren't done with it. It was still under construction. Alright? 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Because of their blindness, they think He's talking about the physical temple. But Lazarus makes it clear for us when he says, He was speaking about the temple of his body. So he was saying, destroy this temple. Me, the body. The temple of his body. So Yeshua is declaring his body, himself personally, and his body, the church, to be the true temple. He was telling them, this temple is done. This temple is soon to be destroyed. I am the true temple now. Look at what Yeshua said about the temple In Mark 13, he says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. This this temple was an incredible thing to behold. I mean, it was made with these huge stones. stones. It's this huge fortress that looked like snow because of the the white that glistened in it. It was just a beautiful thing, and they're, they're marveling at it. And Yeshua says to them, You see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's pretty serious. They're talking about the temple. He said, there's not one stone that's not going to be thrown down. 
And I think it was probably this or something like this that was being remembered that, you know, well, he's speaking against the temple. But as is clear from the examination of the statement in John 2.19, Yeshua didn't say to them that he would destroy the temple. And the witnesses could not agree on what he did say. The idea, however, became lodged in their minds that he somehow said something about destroying the temple. And that just stuck with them. We see it at the cross, Mark 15, 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. See, that, that really stuck with them. And over and over you hear this. Later, even in the book of Acts, we see the same accusation is attributed to Stephen by the false witnesses. For we heard him say, talking about Stephen, that this Yeshua of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So they accuse Stephen of saying that Yeshua of Nazareth is going to destroy it, the temple, and he's going to change the customs. Well, did Yeshua actually say this? Well, he didn't in John 2, but he did in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. He talked about the fact that the temple was going to be destroyed at his second coming. Such a statement that he would destroy the temple would indeed probably have been looked on as blasphemy itself. I mean, just saying that, that's why they brought it up so many times. That's why it's stuck in their head. The idea that he would destroy it and then rebuild it in three days just might have been seen as a messianic claim because they were familiar with Zechariah 6.12 and say to him, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, that's the Messiah, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of Yahweh. Now, this, as Edersheim points out in one of his appendages, is universally admitted to be messianic. All right, That's, This is a messianic verse here. He's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah is going to rebuild the temple, not in a physical sense, but we, his people, are the temple of God. Now, although they understood that Yeshua had said something about destroying a temple and its rebuilding, none of the witnesses would agree. They all had kind of different stories. And Jewish law opposed false witnesses. How about that? They didn't like false witnesses. The biblical penalty for a false witness in a capital case was, anybody want to guess? Yeah, if you're in a capital case and you become a false witness, and they find out, well, that's not really true, guess what? You get to die. I like that. All right? I think that would kind of cut down on false witnesses, don't you? Look at Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 19. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before Yahweh, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, all right, they do investigate, they find out, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. That's great. I love that. Because if you're going to get a false witness, you know, I think there should be a penalty for that. You know that last week, one of the ladies that accused uh, Brett Kavanaugh of raping her in the backseat of a car, 
admitted that she lied? She made it up. She made it up. I hope they prosecute her. I mean, it's a serious thing. You know, you, when someone comes forward with an accusation, we want to believe them, but you got, there has to be evidence. And that's the system that the Lord set up. You know, the justice system. Now, it's funny because, you know, God set this whole thing up for Israel. Now Israel's using this to try God. Cross-examination of a witness was standard in Jewish law. They wanted to make sure that a witness was actually telling the truth. And apparently, the examiners in this case did their job because they said, we just can't find two that agree. None of these witnesses are credible. We can't use them. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Yeshua, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked, are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed? It says He remained silent. Yeshua is being falsely accused and He doesn't say a word. He just stands there. Isaiah had prophesied in 53.7 He was oppressed, He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before His shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. He has nothing to say. He knows what's happening. He knows where he's going. He knows the end of this trial. He knows the outcome. He didn't open his mouth. They're they're trying to accuse him of things. He just is there, not trying to argue with them. Again, we see the Scriptures are being played out in this trial. God's plan of redemption is unfolding just as He planned it but it's being carried out by wicked men who hate Yeshua and who are jealous of them. It's like Genesis 50-20. You meant evil against me, Joseph tells his brothers. These men mean evil against the Lord. They hate Him. But, the rest of the verse says, but God meant it for good. And God means this for good. Not for Yeshua. For us. As He becomes the sacrifice. Now, Mark says the high priest asked Yeshua, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Matthew's account is much stronger than this. It says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the high priest saying, I adjure you by the living God, this was requiring testimony from the prisoner under the oath before God. Look what Leviticus says. If anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear its iniquity. So basically what they're saying is under Jewish law, a witness had to testify when he was called to testify. So is Yeshua violating this? Shake your head like this. Do this. No. Okay. No, he's not. Because it had to, he's a witness. You can't call on a person to witness against themselves. And that's what they're trying to do here. They're trying to get him. To wit- the witnesses, they didn't add up. So they're trying to get him. Well, how about you witness against yourself here? And he's adjuring him. I adjure you to tell me. He says, I don't have to. Okay? That verse doesn't apply here. 
We're not required to testify against yourself. Just today, just like today in a court of law, you can't, you're not, you can't be compelled to testify against yourself. All right? He says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Yeshua's accusers ask what they perceive as a political question. Do you come as Messiah who is expected to overthrow the Roman oppressors and make Israel free again as it was in the days of David? But Yeshua responds that He is heir to a much more comprehensive kingdom than David ever imagined. He says in 62, And Yeshua said, I am. So they're asking Him, Are you the blessed Christ, the Son of the... Are you the Christ, Son of the Blessed? And He says, I am. Now, hopefully we are familiar with that. We've heard Him make that statement over and over. I am the Tetragrammaton. He's claiming to be God. And He says, And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This was more than a claim to be an earthly Messiah. Yeshua is claiming to be God's heir in a unique way. This would be blasphemous if it wasn't in fact true. Okay, The wording of this passage refers us back to the expression Son of Man found in Daniel 7.13 where we see Yeshua as the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving His everlasting kingdom. This prophecy of Daniel was fulfilled at the Ascension. The kingdom of God was given to Christ at His Ascension. This was made manifest to all Israel through the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Jerusalem's destruction, when that temple was destroyed, was a sign that Christ was the Messiah, that He had done what He said He would do. The temple is being and was destroyed. Now, notice the similarities between Yeshua's answer to Caiaphas here and what He said in the Olivet Discourse about the second coming. Yeshua told Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He told His disciples, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, it's obviously the same event in both passages, but in the Mark 13 passage, he's talking about the second coming, which he's actually talking about in the Mark 14 passage. They're both talking about the second coming. Now, notice Caiaphas' response to the statement, and the high priest tore his garments, and he said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Okay, so what happened? How did all of a sudden they decide, you know, he deserves to die? You heard his blasphemy. What did Yeshua say that was blasphemy? Well, Caiaphas understood that Yeshua was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the Jewish Messiah and he was claiming to be God. In order to understand what Yeshua is saying, we need to understand. What is behind this idea of coming in the clouds? He says you're going to see Him coming with the clouds of heaven. When Yeshua said this, now here's one of the big problems that we have. We come to this and we see clouds of heaven. I know what clouds are. Right? We have this in our head. We know what clouds are. We've seen them before. So when you see this statement, Christ is going to come on the clouds, we get this picture in our head of a man on a cloud like a surfboard, he's coming with clouds, right? I mean, that's, we kind of put that together. Is that what they had in mind? No. And here's the problem, people. When we 
take language from the Bible and come up with an understanding of it from our own thought process without realizing where it came from. See, the last quarter of the Bible, all the language, all the idioms, everything about it is, is Jewish, and it comes from the three, first three quarters of the Bible. And if we're not familiar with that, we're not going to understand what's happening here. But if we go back into the Bible and we use, look at this phrase over and over, we'll get an understanding on what's happening here. Yeshua is using here what's called apocalyptic language. The prophets use that. They use it to identify Him as the Messiah, the Judge. And Caiaphas reacted the way he did because he knew, listen, to the Jews, only God rode the clouds. God was the cloud rider. And here's what's interesting. That term cloud rider is literally a slap in the face because to Baal, Baal, because Baal was known as the cloud rider. See, but the Hebrews said, no, he's a false god. Yahweh is the true cloud rider. He's the one who rides the clouds. All right? So God came on clouds. This is a claim to deity when he says you'll see him coming with the clouds. That's why he yells blasphemy. Who do you think you're God? And he said, yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to tell you here. See, because when God came on the clouds, it is speaking of God's presence. It is speaking of his judgment. It's speaking of his salvation. He comes on the clouds. Now, all through the scriptures, God was coming on the clouds in salvation of his people and in judgment of his enemies. This verse is really important. This chapter is really important. Isaiah 19.1. And see, if you get from here, then you can go to the New Testament and understand it. An oracle concerning Egypt. An oracle is a judgment against Egypt. Alright, so Egypt's the one that's getting judged here. Behold, Yahweh is riding a swift cloud. He comes to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Alright, so here's Lord. The Lord's coming to Egypt. He's riding a cloud. In other words, I'm coming for judgment against Egypt. Egypt is going to tremble at my presence. Now here's the thing. We know from Isaiah chapter 20 that what he's talking about here is the Assyrian army is coming against Egypt. They're coming as instruments of wrath from God. God is sending the Assyrian army to destroy Egypt. The Lord is riding a swift cloud. Egypt will tremble at His presence. God came to Egypt in judgment. His presence was made known in judgment, but it was the Assyrians who were literally present, not God. In other words, they didn't look up and see some manifestation of a man riding on a cloud. The judgments when they saw the Assyrians coming in to wipe them out. That was God riding on a swift cloud of judgment. So that's the same thing Yeshua is using now in the New Testament. And God is riding on a swift cloud, not against Egypt this time, but against Jerusalem. And this time it's not going to be the Assyrians, it's going to be the Roman army. But it's His presence in judgment. So Caiaphas reacted the way he did because he knew only God came on clouds. That was a claim to deity. He knew that Yeshua was claiming to be the Messiah of Daniel chapter 7. See, we miss all that stuff if we don't know the background. And that's why you've got to read the whole Bible. 
Okay? And you've got to learn that this language in the New Testament is not all of a sudden coming up there for the first time. It's all through the old. We just have to search it out and figure out how they're using it. This coming with clouds is clearly second coming language. And that's what he's telling him. You're going to see me come on the cloud. You're going to see God destroy this place. All right? Look at uh, Revelation 1.7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Yeah, you can turn that up a little, Kath. It's a little frigid in here. Yeah, I know. It's, it's cold. We're trying to get it up. Let's cut it off for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Revelation 1.7, he's coming with clouds. That's a second coming verse. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So notice that in our text, Yeshua uses the personal pronoun you. Yeshua said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man. Who's the you here? Who's he talking to? It's Caiaphas. The high priest, Caiaphas, asked Yeshua if he is the Son of God, the Messiah, and Yeshua answered Caiaphas by saying, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Yeshua says specifically that the high priest would see both the sitting and the coming. And it must be referring to something that was going to happen soon if he's going to see it. Now, people... You got to do something with this to appease most most believers today, all right? Because most Christians don't believe that the second coming has happened yet. It's still out in the future somewhere. Well, then Caiaphas must still be around somewhere waiting. He's probably really getting tired of waiting, too. It's been a couple thousand years. But Yeshua tells Caiaphas, listen, Caiaphas, you are going to see this. You're going to see me coming. You're going to see the manifestation of my deity when the Roman army comes in here and destroys this place. Guess what? You're going to get to see it. It just makes no sense if it's not happened yet, people. Of course, there's so many scriptures that that don't. Because every time the Lord talks about His coming, He always puts a time statement with it. I'm coming soon, quickly, shortly. To some of you who are standing here, you won't die until it happens. I'm coming to this generation. Over and over, and yet, we miss it. We've been trained to miss it. Because we're told He hasn't come yet. Alright, our text says that Caiaphas will see Him coming with the clouds of heaven while He is sitting at the right hand of power. Which means that it can't be referring to a literal bodily coming of the Lord. See, that's what most people say. Well, the Lord's coming, He's coming in a body. And the whole world's going to see Him. How? Oh, TV. Oh, okay. They're going to be broadcasting on TV and everybody's going to be watching. Everybody will be in their house watching TV so every eye will see him. He's coming in on this cloud and CNN's got it. No, it's fake news. Don't trust that, all right? It's ridiculous. All right, but that's what they think. You know, this physical manifestation of a man riding a cloud coming in. No. Listen, it can't be literal. He can't literally be sitting at the right hand of power and coming on clouds at the same time. It can't happen, all right? It's apocalyptic language. He's coming in judgment. He's going to use the Romans. Mark 14, 63 says, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard it. Blasphemy! You know what's interesting here? We have Yeshua and Caiaphas standing face to face. 
representing two high priests. Caiaphas was the fleshly high priest appointed by the Romans. Yeshua, on the other hand, was the high priest according to the Spirit of God. The writer of Hebrews tells us, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He didn't put himself in that position. But was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And we have a promise in Psalm 110.4, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It shows us that Yahweh had given the priesthood to David's Lord by a promise that would never be revoked. And notice what the high priest did. He tore his garments. Now that's an expression of grief, expression of anger, frustration. But what's interesting here is the high priest's robe was specifically constructed so it wouldn't be torn. Look at Exodus 39, 22-23. He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue, an opening of the robe, and it was like the opening of a garment with a binding around the opening so that it might not tear. So specifically, let's make this high priest's garment so it's something not to be torn. Why? Because the high priests were commanded not to tear their garments. So just to help them out, let's make sure it's a strong garment. All right, look at Leviticus 21.10. The priest who is chief among the brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. Even when Aaron's sons died before Yahweh, you remember Aaron's sons came in and they offered strange fire and God killed them? He was not allowed to show his grief. He was not allowed to tear his clothes. He was not to give that expression of grief because the robe was a symbol of his calling to the priesthood. It was to be kept intact. When Caiaphas tore his robe, he was literally tearing the priesthood away from himself. That's the symbolism here. He's removing himself from the priesthood because he's false. He's a fake priest anyway. They are breaking They have broken, and this is a demonstration of their breaking their covenant with God by tearing the robes that weren't to be torn. And they judged him as deserving death. Now, the phraseology here, as deserving death, it was a recommendation, not a sentence. See, this was an inquiry. This wasn't a trial. It's still night. You're not allowed to hold trials at night. Its view is going to have to be ratified by the official Sanhedrin meeting by daylight. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And to the guards received him with blows. Now, they begin to vent their hatred upon Yeshua and to pour out in venomous abuse all this pent-up jealousy that they have towards him. They begin to spit on him. That's the ultimate form of an insult. They spat on him, they beat him, they covered his face with a garment, and then they hit him and said, Tell us who's hitting you! Tell us who's doing it. People, if you can imagine the God who created the universe is standing there being spit at, being struck by the people He created. Why is He doing this? He's doing this so He can die for the people He created. It's got to give you some kind of glimpse of the love of God for His people. 
You know, I think of this, I think of my God standing there and these people spitting on Him and hitting Him. And I think this would, you know, to make it a modern analogy, this would be, and I, oh, I better not go there. <laughs> okay, let's use the analogy of Trump. I'm not comparing Trump with God, okay? But I'm saying it would be like President Trump being surrounded by some people from a third world country trying to put him on trial. Listen, when he has the absolute complete power and authority over the U.S. military. The most powerful military in the world. How far do you think they're going to get with that? Not far at all. But here's our God, who the angels of heaven will respond to, but nobody moves. They let God be spit upon. They let Him be beat. Because this is an act of love towards us. I love you so much that even though I created you, I'm going to allow you to abuse me and kill me so I can pay for your sin debt. And you can have fellowship with me in heaven. You know, I think by saying, you know, but when they hit him, and they covered his face and then hit him, say, tell us, who, who's doing this? They're challenging Yeshua's prophet status. They're saying, you really aren't a prophet. According to the rules of Deuteronomy 18, you know, tell us who's doing this. His very condemnation and likely His imminent execution disproved for them His prophecies about the temple and His own imminent enthronement. But we know that Yeshua predicted accurately both the mistreatments and the temple's destruction. We see that all played out in history, just like He said it was going to happen. He stands there and takes it because it's part of the plan of God. They mocked Him, they scorned Him, they insulted Him. And 750 years before this, Isaiah had spoken the words that Yeshua must have been thinking while this happened. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This trial, as unjust as it was, was going according to plan. Now, you've got to keep that in your mind. Okay, this trial, we see a lot of injustice going to happen all the way up to the death. Always part of the plan. Now, Luke gives us details of the third hearing that took place in the morning after the sun came up by the Sanhedrin. It would be really the only official so-called trial that he had. Let's look at what Luke has to say, Luke twenty-two sixty-six. When day came, all right, so the sun's up, now it can actually be legal. The assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. That's the Sanhedrin. They're bringing him before the official council of Sanhedrin. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. <laughs> I think he did that a few times already. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. For from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. You're saying I'm God. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So after discussion and confirmation of what had happened during the night, there followed this guilty verdict. So the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical trial of our Lord is trial before the leaders of Israel 
ended with the charge against Yeshua of blasphemy. He's saying he's God. He's not. They therefore believed he was worthy of death. So now they bind Yeshua, and they're going to go from the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the palace of Herod, where Pilate would have had his headquarters. But they also understand that the charge of blasphemy is not going to be of any interest to Pilate, so they had to come up with a political charge to bring before Pilate. So the charge they come up with is Yeshua claims to be the king of the Jews. That'd make him guilty of treason. He's claiming to be a king. So here's what we have, people. The leadership of Israel. God's chosen people. When God had given up on every person on the face of the earth because of their sin, He turned them over at the Tower of Babel. He said, I'm done. I'm done with all you. He turns them over to the 70 gods. He turns in chapter 12 to start something new for Himself. I'm going to create Israel. I'm going to create a people that will be mine. These were His people. He had given them His law, His prophets. They're His people. They have decided on the day of Passover to kill the Passover lamb, Yeshua the Christ. They think they're in control. They think they're doing what they should be doing. And it just so happens, as they're sacrificing the Passover in the temple, they're putting the true Passover lamb to death. All according to God's plan. I want to show you what Paul said about Israel in chapter 9. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're Israelites! There is people, he, his heart is breaking for them. And to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This He's got some great things to say about Israel. It, to them was given the worship. Now, this interpretation may convey less, I think, than what Paul intended. He's talking about the totality of temple worship, the totality of the Mosaic Covenant. Everything, every sacrifice they made, everything they did was to picture Christ. All the festivals pointed to Christ. Everything that these guys went through was all to point to Christ. They were designed to teach Israel that there was coming someone who would fulfill all this. All the symbols of the Mosaic Law cry out that Yeshua of Nazareth is a Passover lamb. And that lamb was standing before them and in their jealous hatred, they wanted to put Him to death. They thought they were doing their will. You know what this shows us, people? Listen, these people... They had the law of God. They studied the law of God. They supposedly taught the law of God and protected the law of God and protected the temple of God. And here is the man of God. And they are so blind. So blind. All the things that Christ claimed to be. And they're going to put Him to death on the Passover. They couldn't see it. And they couldn't see it because, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, that God had blinded their eyes. They want their Savior dead. These sinful men stand here judging the judge of all the earth. 
Matthew tells us this. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders and the people conferred together against Yeshua to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. So we'll pick up Yeshua's second trial before the Romans next week. They've done, Israel has done all they can do. They don't have the power to kill him. And, you know, there's some debate on this and we'll get into it next week, but I think they could have killed him if they wanted to. They killed others. Remember Stephen? They stoned him to death. They had the power to stone people. But what they what didn't they have the power to do was to crucify someone. They don't want Yeshua stoned. They want him crucified because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And they wanted to show the world this is a cursed man. And this cursed man was he was cursed of God because he took our penalty that we might accept His righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Lord, it's incredible as we watch our Lord being put through a mock trial, being slapped, being spit upon, so He can become the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the very ones who are attacking Him. Lord, it's amazing, Father. I pray that we would learn, Lord, through through the Scriptures, through understanding who You are, that we would learn, Lord, to never question Your love for us. Lord, that You would go to a cross. That You would bleed and die on a cross. should be more than enough of a demonstration of just how much You love us. Thank You, Lord, for that love. Forgive us for our pettiness, Lord. We love You. Amen.